you're on inside, I would turn her and set this turn thing. The podcast is really the best. It's true, Vincent, don't you know? You turn should listen to that podcast show. Turn inside, I would turn her and set turn don't you know? This week's the best. Turn and set. You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And an episode that sort of happened by accident, Seth. <laughs> First of all, we were supposed to do our jam band Trump thing with Vince, and Vince got held up because Vince Herman. Vince Herman of Leftover Salmon. He got held up because we live in Atlanta, and I love this city, but traffic and things. That's not why he got held up. He, oh, is that what it no, was? No, he, he was at the venue, showered, and then we went there to go interview him, and he was already spaced out and with a friend and halfway through town he's like oh shit i was supposed to be at the venue doing an interview which is all right it all worked out well because we also had just found out about tim newbie's book i did not find out about this until a couple days before this interview nor did we find out that tim was there until yeah and then the it turns out tim was so. there we could have interviewed him in person instead we're doing it on the phone whatever but the we're just a little podcast seth we're not on anybody's media list no, yet. Uh, no matter how many episodes we do with them although you say that but let me tell you something leftover salmon camp has been fantastic to work with getting us music as quickly as possible um and coordinating the interviews making even when the interview got um, kind of pushed uh, and changed, you know, making themselves available. Both Drew and Vince yes. grabs their instruments right after soundcheck yeah. and give us about 20, 30 minutes. Because they felt bad about, you know, Vince not being able to do this with us, but it ended up working out. We'll have the jam band trump for you in a when? while. I don't know. We'll see. But, but, you know, that was your idea, and it's very current. There's current stuff on it. Okay, well, we'll try to get it out, but more importantly... You should actually, you should should do it right now. Let's stop this episode. (laughs) Folks, we'll be right back. No, but we want to talk about this book, and it was really exciting. We get a couple uh, exclusive performances here. We have an interview with with Tim on the phone coming. Um, The name of the book is Leftover Salmon, 30 Years of Festival. And we also, as Seth said, we have about... It's like a 20-minute interview and a couple songs, including a Bromberg song. With uh, with Vince and Drew. And Recorded them. at the City Winery. The show that night was part of their living room show. So they're doing this series where they're setting up like a living room with, with uh, what would you say? Like, yeah, light, like uh, lamps. I couldn't get the word out. Right, but it's also, it's more about the song. It's not as, at your uh, high, high energy, um, you know, goofy, intelligent driven mm-hmm. slam grass but it was still more, amazing but deutsch yeah, still deutsch on the, on the on the piano was yes. amazing did you know he was with fat mama no until that night until you told I, me that night yeah. i i'm mean, like listening i'm like man this guy's really good where do we know him from and i've seen them i should know fat mama, and then he's recorded with so many he's i didn't realize how many players he's played with and just his whole he's got an amazing career we should interview him sometime and also um well obviously thorn's amazing on the banjo and alvin really uh Really, really shine. I just called him Alvin. Well, let's. I just pulled a Rob. Let's get to some items of business. First of all, we are proud members of Osiris. The Osiris Podcast Network, folks. Summertime is coming. They're going to be doing all kinds of events, couch tours. Uh, Actually, you need to go to HF Pod. They're they're uh, trying to get stories from people who are at Big Cypress. We're coming up on the twenty year anniversary. The Helping Friendly Podcast is putting together a big thing in honor of that. You need to send in your stories. You need to go to OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter to find out about all kinds of crazy stuff that's been going on this summer. You sound like my mother. You need to, you need to, you need to. We encourage you to. Call your podcaster. Don't forget to call your podcaster. Uh, across the margin, too, I'm going to have a, in one of our upcoming full episodes, I'm going to have, I've been getting into Across the Margin lately. Excellent music podcast with the dynamic Michael Shields. Um, but also, marijuana is legal, Seth. Did you know that? Yeah. 
And with the it's legal- not legal. It's not legal here. Well, in some states. Okay, there you go. And with legalization comes the need for packaging. Mm-hmm. And not just for convenience for us, the snotty marijuana consumer, but also to adhere to state guidelines so kids can't get their hands on the edibles or whatever else easily. This is really important stuff. And one of the leaders, the leader- Not one of the leader. The leader right, in the yeah. industry is one of our- Sponsors. It's named- sponsor of uh, our show and also par- um, Osiris. So thank you, Osiris. Part of the reason you can listen to these podcasts for free is because of companies like Kushco. And uh, they've gotten to this level because they can adhere to state regulations and still have a little flair to their packaging. Um, they know all the, regula- all the regulations for every state. They have tons of companies that count on them. This is a really strong company that's only going to grow. And they prove that you can adhere to the regulations without ugly packaging. Mm-hmm. And they're on the stock market. Yes. KSHB, is it? KSHB on the stock market. They also produce uh, vaping hardware, vaping supplies. Um, those of you who've been to a cannabis dispensary, which these days, Seth, is, is a lot of people. And if you have, you've probably seen them. If you've heard of the companies like GTI, G-Leaf, Acreage, they all, they all use it. So go to cushsupplyco.com slash podcast. How do you spell that? K-U-S-H-S-U-P-P-L-Y-C-O dot com slash podcast. Kushko, this is a great company. Invest and thank us later, and we will. We'll let hey, you come on the show. speaking of investments, if you're going to be investing, don't wait until April when tax season comes, folks. Don't wait till April and get screwed. Get Palade. Call Palade Clark Financials today. And we're getting close to April 15th, so probably you know who's doing your books now, but... It's also maybe the time of year where you're reassessing. Maybe these people aren't looking out for your best. Maybe they're treating you short shrift. Maybe they're too short-sighted. And it's not just about the accounting pieces. Are you a band? Are you in the music industry? Are you looking for some financial consultations and some uh, maybe a business manager? Uh, this, these are the services this company has. So definitely check out Polay Clark. That's P-O-L-A-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com. Or if you're an athlete. They do a lot of work with athletes. I know we're, we're very popular. We're, um, our show is often heard in the Washington Capitals locker room. They are the reigning Stanley Cup champions, so that is very, very flattering. If you're looking for a financial person, Pole Clark. Check them out. So, Seth. So, Rob. A um, couple quick things I left over. They were formed in Colorado back in late 80s. Came out of a couple other bands. The whole story's in this book. One key thing. The whole story's in the story. The whole story's in the story. But um, Andy Thorne's the current banjo player, and it took them a while, even though they had some amazing banjo players, Mm -hmm. it took them a while to really, I don't want to say replace, but to have someone fill the role that Mark Van used to fill in a way that was comfortable to the band and, and helped feel the music at this time. And... The end of this interview, Tim Newby gives us a, a nice reading from his book, Leftover Salmon, 30 Years of Festival, um, that pretty much walks us through the importance of that mm. time. And Thorne, if you're listening, please, we want you to stay Leftover's banjo player, so stop skiing. Yeah, musicians shouldn't ski. Just my feeling, just my two cents. As you podcast, I'm telling you, we don't think you should be skiing so often. Don't do the difficult slopes. Stay on the small slopes. Just hang down by the bottom of the mountain and play music for the skiers like Bill Nurse used to. <laughs> well, what do you say? Shall we jump into it, Rob? Where are we at? Let's go to the phones! Hello? 
Hey there, Tim. How you guys doing? Good. This is Rob. And Seth, welcome to Inside Out with Turner. How you guys doing, man? Thanks for having me today. And Seth, great. And this is a great, great book. Um, I'm enjoying the heck out of reading it. And one of the things is the way you set it up with a chapter on each musician. And there are chapters that could almost be distinct um, so that you sort of retell certain key moments um, but that gives a great historical context to you know how some of these musical friendships began sort of magically. Well, yeah, it's funny when I first sat down and put like the proposal and, and the outline together, I kind of had that idea. My thought was, oh, I'm just doing this as a framework, and I'll you know get rid of this later on. And then it ended up really working as a good way to kind of frame what was happening. And and the thing I found maybe most interesting about Salmon and it's just all the connections they have throughout time with the people they know and who they played with and how they kind of weave it out. So it made it to kind of serve as a really good framework to have like, Hey, this peg in time, this peg in time here, and here's where we are at kind of historically with what's going on. So yeah, it was kind of interesting to tell those little pockets of stories there. And you take us back to the core three, uh, to their days before so that's, Colorado. Uh, that's Vince Herman, Drew Emmett and, and Mark Van. And if we could start with Drew Emmett, if you could talk about his father who, you know, accidentally shot him and then left a left a door open to the house the night before they moved to Colorado and this, they didn't ma- make it to Colorado, you know. Yeah. It, so it, it, the, the story actually came up. Drew told me we were, we were kind of sitting back there and he, backstage when he was kind of telling me these stories. But what happened was is uh, he was living in Tennessee at the time um, before they moved to Nashville I mean, before they moved to Colorado. And he had two kind of crazy kind of happenstances. One, um, his dad was kind of loading a gun. He was going to go back and, and shoot something. And he cocked it while they were standing on their patio. And it was like a hair trigger. And it went off. And the bullet ricocheted off of the patio, like split into two pieces, and lodged itself into Drew's legs. Um, and they were able to remove part of one of the bullets. But the other one they did. And he still has a couple of good nasty scars on his legs. But he said he kind of has no lasting you know, impact beyond that besides like a, like a scar on there. Um, emotionally or physically yeah there might be some emotions left yeah yeah maybe yeah <laughs> i don't think he's much of a gun fan now so right. <laughs> can you blame him um and he, may, he may also not be a snake fan because um the night before they were leaving tennessee to move to colorado um drew's dad had a, had a job out there um it was kind of a warm night and drew's dad left the back door open and drew even said like i said to my dad like hey you know maybe that's not a good idea we live out in the woods things can come in and he just you know he said my dad didn't want to hear what a you know a young kid had to say and was like, oh, I know best. So he's like, um, my mom got up in the middle of the night and a like copperhead snake or you know some kind of snake had got in the back door and struck her like twice on the legs. Um, oh. Her dad came when like she heard heard the commotion. He got struck. So Drew, who said, you know, I was always raised around the outdoors at the time, did what I was taught at the time is you know he took a little knife and like made an X over the the bites and like sucked out the venom, you know, and he's like, I don't know if that worked or whatever, but that's what I was taught at the time. And he's like, both my parents went to the hospital. He was like, my dad was released first, made it to Colorado. We eventually made it out there, but he was like, it was crazy that we almost you know, didn't make that trip out there because of, because of this event there. So yeah, so he, oh, he made my. out like guns or snakes. If I pull out the arrow, will you suck the poison? <laughs> There's so many great, great, great stories in this book that are windows into what the the band became. But there's a Vince story that's a window into what he would become because he used to play in Morgantown, West Virginia with Lou Pritchard. And mm-hmm. and they would do these gorilla gigs where they would just show up 
and play. And can you tell about the Boston Beanery story? Yeah, well, like to kind of set that up, like it's it was really interesting to talk with Vince and hear how he became Vince, so to speak. But it, there really wasn't a lot of change. So when he was in college, um, his buddy Lou Pritchard would play, like you said, these gorilla shows, and they would just show up anywhere stand on chairs and stand on tables and just start playing. Um, so one time there was a restaurant in Morgantown, the Boston Beanery, and they and a couple of friends just barged in and just took over and started playing. And people started getting excited. And, and Vince was really kind of working his, you know, Vince kind of front, you know, front man stuff and getting people excited. And, you know, the manager wasn't super happy at the, the, the venue at the restaurant and kind of <laughs> had them leave. And, and Vince just kept the party going and everybody kind of follows them out Conga style line into the slot <laughs> behind the restaurant and the party keeps on going. Well, they clearly weren't supposed to be partying in there and the police were called and, and Lou said the police showed up looking like they were ready for some business. And he was like, Vince just clearly had that knack and read the scene and started playing God bless America. And the, the cops started singing and laughing and they kind of realized, all right, like, you know, this isn't as bad as we think. And with a smile, they dispersed everybody, but it was like that same kind of thing that Vince does now when he's mm-hmm. a crowd and, leads them out to you know, the front or leads them in a sing song or does whatever. He was doing it back then when he was just a you know, 19-year-old kid in, in college with his buddy Lou. That's when he really got convinced that this was his career. But one of the key things about this book is uh, people go to Leftover Salmon and often they see Vince jumping around being goofy. And, and it's often lost on people that there is a method to his madness. He mm-hmm. is an extremely intelligent man as well. Yeah, like I think, I think it can. Like I think... Vince can almost hide his intelligence well, and I and I say that it was much with much love, but like there is, there can be the perception that he is just like the you know stoned, carefree jokester, like leading us all into fun, but like Vince can sit and talk deeply about any musical style you want, or like you know about the effects of you know mining in West Virginia, and like I just think that you know you have this perception of what he does up there, but there's so much thought and intelligence behind it. Like he's not just up there just goofing around, like he's creating a moment and a memory but at the same time like there's real deep thought into what he's doing and the references he makes like you know to me you got to listen to a bunch of salmon shows and hear like the subtle little references he, thro- he throws in i mean he used to when he was on tour like walk around and and go see what was happening in the local community so that night he could talk about whatever was happening to the town so everybody could be like wow how did vince know about this and how did he connect <laughs> me with that so i just think that's something that sometimes is lost you really got to listen to what he's doing and go man he's talking about what happened today like wow that's crazy so and the one founding member who's no longer with us is mark van wonderful banjo player and you tell us a story i never knew there was a festival of american folk life on the national mall that he went to on independence day in 1972 can you tell about that yeah so as a a young kid he you know played a little bit of music Um, his family was fairly musical um but he showed up and there was this banjo player carl paxter who was there and he was just intrigued and sat there all day and just kept kind of watching him and watching him and moving to see what he was doing with his fingers. Um, and he had a ukulele that he played and he went home and tried to like replicate that. And he eventually went to his parents and were like, look, I, I want a banjo more than anything as a kid. And his parents kind of realized that he had this passion. Um, and they also realized that he just jumped into it really quickly that like they tried to give him lessons, but they actually felt that stifled his like creativity and how fast he was learning. And and Mark kind of had said, like, I didn't get into bluegrass. I got into the banjo, and the banjo was in bluegrass. So it wasn't like he loved bluegrass music and said, I want to be a banjo player. He loved the banjo, and the banjo was in bluegrass. So it was interesting how he came in. But, I mean, that instrument, like, he really really came to define him. And, you know, everything he liked, that's what he loved that 
sound and all of that. And then he was like, oh, there's other musical avenues I can go and throw this banjo into it. But it all started from, you know, this afternoon just watching this banjo player play and being completely, you know, intrigued by the sound and wanting to create it himself. Now, I'd like you to step aside from the historian element and, and give your personal opinion on two pieces of leftover salmon lore. Uh-oh. One would be when Vince and his friend Steve Burnside each tried out for to replace the guitarist and left-hand string band. This is back, mm-hmm. I think, even before Salmon Heads. I would think so. Yep. Yep, this would have been, yep, it would have been like in 1987. Um, Vince and Drew knew each other, but the Salmon Heads had not started yet now. Well, um... They were both told they did not get the job, and Vince has long been suspicious that he ended up getting the job because he handled that news of not getting it better than did his friend Steve. To yes. what extent do you think that is true? Uh, Drew won't deny and or confirm it. Um, I could see it very well being that way. I mean, you know, Vince is an easy guy to get along with, and if somebody takes rejection that nicely, maybe you go, maybe this is somebody I want around here. Maybe this, yeah, is, maybe this is someone that can like <laughs> won't be upset if I don't go with their lyrics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's just it, you know. Like maybe here's somebody who's going to listen to what I had to say because at the time the left hand string band was was Drew. You know, it was his songs, and he he was he was definitely driving that 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 train there. So it, it very well could be, you know. And at the same time, though, they still use Steve occasionally for some other shows if if somebody couldn't make it. So it wasn't like they completely kicked Steve to the curb. And Vince's band Salmonheads debuted a college party on on the legendary The Hill in Boulder, and we're, mm-hmm. we're told by someone from the college that they weren't playing college music and, and told to stop. And then a rock that night was thrown through a window of the venue that gave Salmonheads this bad boy reputation, but it's always been ambiguous as to whether or not it was thrown by a member of a band or if it was just a coincidence or what. Yeah, Vince was telling me this story about the, this first gig and how you know, they were told that they need to stop what they're doing because this is this is not college music, which I guess we can see, right? It's you know, it's an accordion and you know, a washboard, and it's just really odd. But somebody, and again, just like the other story, will not confirm or deny that they were a part of this. But a rock was thrown to the offending venue. Um, maybe to just let them know, yeah, that uh, we don't appreciate not being told to to play music here anymore. And all of a sudden, this band had this this kind of badass reputation, and everybody wanted to to see this band that had a washboard and accordion and was willing to throw rocks through windows. But again, sort of like the uh, why did Drew hire Vince thing? It's it's never been confirmed or denied, but I think we all know the true answer to that. <laughs> they hurriedly worked up a cover of "I Won't Back Down." Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that's what I, I love how you parallel you work in the careers of other musicians. We're on Osiris Podcast Network. There's a lot of Fish podcasts, and um, mm-hmm. Fish debuted in Colorado at a place called the Roma in July mm-hmm. of '88. And just 11 months later, that same club, um, there was a gig that was pretty much the first time the three what would become the three frontmen of Leftover Salmon played together. Is that not correct? Yeah, so Telluride uh, Bluegrass Festival in 1989. Um, Mark was out there to compete in the banjo contest. Um, Drew was there in a bit of protest. Um, he thought the left-hand string band should have been at the festival. They were kind of getting a bit of a, rep- a really good reputation, but they weren't hired to play. So he was going to put a band in the band contest, but he wanted to make a joke of it. So he was trying to find like 20 people to put on stage and just have an utter like, you know, joke to show the people that he was mad. He wasn't chosen to kind of, um, you know, have his band play there. And then Vince and the Salmonheads had some gigs in town at the Roma. 
Um, Vince and Drew obviously knew each other. Well, Drew was walking around the campgrounds looking for some other players for the band contest. And he said, I heard this most amazing banjo picking. And he's like, I stopped by and there was a dude in a sleeveless shirt, short hair and a John Deere hat. And it was the most amazingly perfect banjo we ever heard. It was Mark Mann. Nice. Sat down, sat down, started talking with them. And he said, I just realized that I wanted to play some more with this guy. Um, the Salmonheads had a gig that night at the Roma and they had asked um, Drew and Glenn Keefe, who was at the time playing bass in the left-hand string band, to come sit in. Drew figured the Salmonheads would be up for some adventure. He asked Mark to come join him. So that night on stage, we had, you know, kind of a hybrid Salmonheads with Drew Emmett, um, Mark Van, and, and Glenn Keefe. So a very early kind of mix of, of people who had formed Leftover Salmon, and they just played this show. And, you know, the Salmonheads were kind of this weird Cajun band, and the left-hand string band was a more of a, you know, a progressive bluegrass band. But that night with Mark's banjo and having two bases on stage and a washboard and Drew and Vince, it just, it turned into something special. And, and, you know, people kind of just remember that there was this really crazy mix of energy and music in the air and like, whoa, what, you know, what happened here? And they kind of said that we can sort of set the tone. The next night they kind of met up again and Vince was leading people through the campground. And they were like, you know, looking back, that was like the inaugural night of leftover salmon, though nobody knew it at the time. At the time it was just, this amazing weekend where they got together and played this amazing show at the Roma. And then they picked in the campground all weekend and sealed the deal kind of by hiking up, you know, the, the, the Beaver Creek falls right there to kind of close out the weekend and celebrate this new friendship they had. So it really was, it was just like really kind of important moment in time. there, just by pure coincidence. And recordings of that Roma show do exist, correct? Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if I, I've never come across them. There are some later salmon head shows that I think from there, and there's some, Early leftover sandwiches. I don't know if I've ever heard that. I've always just had to talk with people firsthand and hope that their memories aren't too fuzzy from having too much fun that night, which, as we know, at salmon shows is you know definitely a possibility. Now, Mimi from Fruition, when she was on her show, talked about song bombing Vince and told us the whole thing about song bombing, where you just go up to a tent in the middle of the night and open it up and start singing. And I've been mm-hmm. hearing more and more about this from recent musicians, and I love reading in this book what probably are the roots of this and that's what vince used to do uh based on a lounge lizard song can you tell can you tell us about that yeah so they did this thing called anawacking and it started one night <clears throat> they had their their camp at telluride um and they were looking to stir up some fun they kind of maybe felt it was a little down of a night so they gathered up their instruments and they you know kind of trumbled across the campgrounds to their friends and they thought they were going to surprise their friends and they at first started singing uh chestnuts roasting on the the fire the christmas song <laughs> written by mel Torme. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because that makes perfect sense, right? And they get there and they start singing and two heads pop out of the tents and they realize it wasn't their friends. They were at the <laughs> wrong tent. But the people thought, man, this is kind of funny. And so they went the rest of the night, did it another you know, 10 or 15 times and had a pretty good reaction. It became kind of a regular thing. And then it soon whittled down to where they would you know, go to sing the song Anawak by you know, the Lounge Lizards. Um, and they eventually kind of even whittled it down sometimes to where they wouldn't even bring instruments. It would just be acapella because it got a little bit much late night to be lugging your instruments around the campground or whatever kind of altered state of mind people might be in. So it was a little safer to just kind of, you know, do that. But it, it evolved and they could do it anywhere. It could happen in the campgrounds. It could happen in hotels. It could happen on the bus. It could, you know, anywhere. They could just burst into this, this Anorak song and it, it became a bit of a tradition. Yeah. And wherever you were and whenever it was time, you know, there's stories that 
you would get a call at three o'clock in the morning and people would be singing into the phone. You know, this is a pre cell phone and, you know, just singing like, you got to be here now and just start singing Anoak to wake you up or they come banging on your door when you were sleeping in the hotel at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. So it just kind of became this tradition, and, you know, a sign of love. If you got Anoak, you knew you were loved because they took the time to come there and do that to you. There's so many great things in this book. We're, we're trying to keep it short here, but string cheese fans, you got to listen. You got to hear how Michael Kang was influenced by Drew. You got to hear how Michael Kang wouldn't touch slide mandolin because that was Drew's turf. You got to hear how Keith Mosley and leftover Salmon's bassist Ty North bonded over trying to find their space in each band. But I want you to talk about Michael Wooten because he was a drummer uh, mm-hmm. who had a pedigree that I don't know if many people know about this he was in this one band zephyr and this other band navarro each of which were very distinguished and he had uh interaction he, he, he recorded with bobby blue bland can you bobby talk a bit about uh, michael wooten yeah well so michael wooten i mean he's obviously you know much older than this guys and he was like a super established drummer in the 70s um his band navarro was actually about to break up and carol king heard them and asked them to come be her backing band. And they were like, well, this is too good an opportunity. And they ended up playing as Carol King's backing band and on two albums for like the latter half of the seventies. Um, then he went and, and played with Bobby Blue Bland. So he was this super established drummer. And when Salmon was looking for a drummer right before they were recording the Bridges to Burt album, you know, Michael Wooten and, you know, kind of expressed that he was interested. And they were like, this is, this is just too, too good. And it was, it was, you know, Michael Wooten and Rob Galloway who had long played together. And they were just like, this is just too amazing to pass up. These guys are studio pros. I mean, they are real deal guys. And they said that really helped them so much that first time because they had this great, amazing classic rock like rhythm section. And Michael Wooten's drumming is just so perfect and smooth and just this classic sound. And it, it was amazing that, you know, they got somebody uh, kind of of that stature, but he came in and, you know, just fit in perfectly with them. And I knew about. Trey Anastasio sitting with them at the Rialto. As a matter of fact, Drew Emmett in our one of our interviews talked about how that happened. But Trey tried to lead the crowd through a meat stick dance, which, by the way, the song was brand new then. This is back in 99, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there was some confusion that, that you know, there was uh, somebody was goofing around on stage and Trey thought, oh, this is maybe going to be the, the meat stick thing. And he tried to get the crowd to do it and the crowd didn't really know what he was doing and it kind of just fizzled out. But I think there was more some confusion on Somebody was maybe giving like a signal to somebody or trying to do something and Trey misinterpreted it and tried to, to give the meat, you know, start the meat stick dance. And the crowd had no idea what it was because, again, <laughs> it was still fairly new. And yeah. it just became a big, you know, a big, huge mess. And I love it. You have one of my f- favorite Colonel Bruce, Colonel Bruce quotes r- immediately when I read this. Colonel Bruce Hampton was the fulcrum between bullshit and the mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well said. I, I don't think you could tell Salmon's story without talking about Bruce. Like he had so many quotes and, and about them and the love that he had for Salmon and the love that Salmon had for them and how, how much he influenced Salmon. I just, I, you couldn't tell the story without having him in there. And the last words, the, the first words in the book and the last words in the book are, are all Colonel Bruce. The last mm-hmm. words in the book are, there is nothing like leftover salmon. And I just think that, you know, what else needs to be said? So like, you know, he is, he's, he's the, the fulcrum between that bullshit and the mysterious and leftover salmon is definitely in that vein, you know? Yeah. And if you could just a quick word about gnome pickles, pickle need, cause I, I was reading this just after hearing Chris Steely, uh, honor him on NPR's, uh, live from here program. <laughs> could you just talk for a minute about gnome? Sure. Um, yeah, Noam joined the band um, after Mark Van had passed, but he had first met them. He had a bit of a connection 
Um, cause he played with guys who Jeff Austin had played with in college. His band in college was the blue grass holes. And two of his buddies after Jeff left to go out to Colorado were then playing with Gnome at the time. And Salmon was going to be in the area and they kind of said, Hey, you know, go, go meet Salmon. So Gnome showed up at the bus, knocked on the door. Um, and him and Mark sat on the bus and picked a little bit. He actually sat in later that night. There's recordings out there. You can find it. It's, uh, exactly March of 01. But you can find those shows. It's at the um, in Urbana, Illinois, um, maybe the Copper Dragon. I forget the, I forget the room there. But you can find those recordings. So after Mark Van passed and they were starting to try and you know find a replacement banjo player, they reached out to Gnome. They tried him out, and I mean, Gnome is you know amazingly talented. You can't you can't you know not recognize that. And they asked him to join, him. and Gnome said, "Here I was in school." wanting to be a musician and I had signed up for classes and was ready for like my senior year to start. And I have an opportunity to start a job <laughs> that I was going to wait to do after graduation. So it was like, I went and like canceled all my classes and put everything on hold. And you know, that October I was out on the road with salmon. Beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's again, kind of that there's so many salmon has their fingers in so many people and they weave in and out and the connections that everybody in the band has had and the odd connections of who they played with. And, you know, Mark Van played with Larry Keel and this, and you know, Andy's played with Anders and Travis and all these people. It's amazing the connections they all, the weird connections they had, and, and whatever. It's just how Salmon flows through everything. Mm-hmm. And speaking of flow, can you talk about how each drummer has kind of defined each era of the band? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you know they've they've had these really four distinct drummers. They had Michael Wooten, who we were talking about, who kind of had more of a classic rock sound. And, you know, uh, then you, you move from him to Sype, who just has this, you know, amazing, you know, Colonel Bruce sound, right? I mean, you know, without describing the other day. And then you have kind of the hard driving, hard rock sound of, of Jose. And then you move into, you know, kind of all wind sound where it's this newer kind of Azure sound. And I think that like, you know, you can't have leftover sand without Vincent Drew, but they can go through these different kind of, movements and changes and it's all because the drummers are kind of driving the band and i really had loved this quote that Sype had. i mean you know you know Sype is arguably one of the most talented drummers like in the scene we have and he was like you know i thought i was gonna play with sam and it was gonna be easy it's bluegrass and he was like man it was one of the hardest things i ever had to do was to <laughs> was to almost to play that simply but do so much there and i think a lot of these drummers find that out and, and drew has said to me it was like it's weird that all these guys seem to have some weird kind of jazz background and it really works for us because we don't really just do one thing so they all have this ability to to move in all these different ways and then it helps define what we are and i think vince and drew and whoever else is with them at the band time kind of can, can play off that oh we're gonna we're gonna be a little more jazzy we got alan cool we're gonna be a little more you know out there we've got Sype or whatever so i think they kind of help define some of the errors a little bit well you are gonna read us a little segment but i wanted to lead up to that by saying I, I tried to broach this in the interview with Drew, and I think I was a little awkward about it, which is, is my want sometimes, right, Seth? Go ahead. you Go ahead, Seth. I don't have to. Everyone will hear it here. But it, I feel like the band's having a renaissance. I feel like you're hearing more about – it's, it's, again, like like many years ago where I, I'm repeatedly hearing people seeing Leftover Here or There raving about the shows. It seems to me like they're playing more gigs and, and that they're more of a well-oiled machine and that they're in a bit of a renaissance. Would you, would you, to what extent would you agree and not agree? And if you, if you don't mind, if you could take that into the reading that you've selected for us. Sure. You know, I, I think where they are at right now is – in such an amazing good place. Can you say, when are they the best? I mean, that, that's hard to do, right? I mean, you know, when they were the, the, the original group with, with Mark, was that the best? Was it the stripped down five piece when they had, you know, tie and psych? It's hard to say, but like, 
are they doing something amazing every night right now? A hundred percent. You know, I, I, I talked with Steve Berlin a little bit and he was like, look, he was like, I, I, for my money, he's like, they're playing better than they ever have. Now that's, that's kind of one person's opinion, but I, I think that's an argument that you can definitely have. You know, I mean, they are just on such a creative role. And I think Vince and Drew are so reacting to having Andy, you know, Andy Thorne on banjo and having Eric Deutsch on keys and having Greg Garrison, who's been kind of a rock for so long and Alan Robinson on drums. Like I think they're really reacting to that. Not that they haven't before, but I just think they hit this amazing mix of like new guys with some fresh ideas, but you still have Vince and Drew because you can't have Sam without Vince and Drew and they're still doing their thing. But now you have a little bit something different. I just think it's really made this amazing new sound. And so with that, to kind of lead into this, I just thought I would kind of talk to me. Some of this rebirth happens, you know, after Mark passed, they went through some tough times. They took a little hiatus. They came back and then they eventually found Andy. And, and, you know, I think Andy really helped solidify what they're doing. So coming from the book and for those who are following at home, we're going to start on page 284. Um, if you're, if you're not following me at home, you can definitely purchase the book anywhere. All rise. Yes, and you should. It's an excellent book. I'm loving, loving reading it. All rise and turn to t- page 284. There you go. <laughs> Over the following year, Thorne continued to sit in whenever he was sit in or replace Flinter whenever he was unable to make a show. It was becoming clear that Thorne was an uncommonly talented and filled a hole missing since Van passed away. Bassist Greg Garrison remembers a run of shows with Thorne where everything just as the band was beginning to think more and more about moving forward full-time again, it was clear the future had to be with Thorne, who was revitalizing the band with his infectious, youthful spirit and inventive playing. Andy really had t- helped tie the room together, says Herman. It was like the tripod we, tripod we had with Mark. It felt like we had three legs in the front line again. It felt really good. Andy was definitely the key to wanting to get after it again. Salmon realized the answers he had been looking for were there all along. The feeling was so reminiscent of what they had with Van that Thorne says Herman even accidentally called him Mark one night during a show. One of the contributing factors that had led to the eventual hiatus was continu- continuously trying to find a replacement for Van. The constant turnover began to wear on the band. With the addition of Thorne, worry over who would be with the band tomorrow evaporated. While they had played with an array of ultra-talented banjo players since the passing of Van, something was still missing, and it was just something that made Salmon uniquely Salmon. Thorne was the missing something. Like Van... Thorne plays the banjo in a most unbanjo way, and it is that uniqueness that is at the heart of Salmon's music. Still, Thorne, as banjo had done nearly two decades prior, at first struggled with how to create the volume needed from his banjo to be able to play with electric instruments. I wasn't used to playing that loud, Thorne says. I didn't have my banjo rigged up properly. The importance of the addition of Thorne was apparent, not just to Salmon, but also to their friends and family who had struggled along with them at the immeasurable loss of band. Even though they had tremendous players like Noam and Matt Flinner, it was just different, says Sam Bush. Thank goodness for Andy. He was just the right person for them. He is the best guy in the world to get along with. For Emmett and Herman, he filled more than just a musical role. The trio of Emmett, Herman, and Van was looked at as a tripod that helped support the rest of the band. With the loss of Van, the tripod was missing a leg and no longer able to support to provide the support it used to. All the banjo players they had since Van were amazing and talented, but none clicked with the pair like Thorne did. Thorne would prove to be the key to the band's rebirth, not only musically, but personally. Upon joining the band, he already had personal connections with both Emmett from his time with the Emmett Nursery Band and Herman, who he had recently come to know through his son Silas and Colin, who were friends of Thorne's. This allowed, the two to, this allowed him to be a buffer to the two as they slowly reconnected their friendship that had become strained over the previous years. We all like to do the same thing, says Thorne. Drew and I love to ski and mountain bike, and Vince just loves to pick, and I will pick all day. So we became good friends, and I think that was the difference. They had that friendship with Mark, and they needed that third personality in there. 
With Thorne, they were a complete band again. They felt the energy they had been missing was back. Their future seemed secure, and the band could go back to simply worrying about the music. Emmett states, when Andy joined, that's when things took off, when we got the chemistry back. After all these years, he was the one who made it a band. Thank you so much, Tim. Awesome. Thank you, man. And now we go to Drew and Vince. Struggled to be staying alive. He got sidetracked. He put on clothing and an ordered mind. Left his instincts all far behind. He dropped his rhythm and he picked up time. And now he's out there looking for a ride back. Rob, Rob. The last time we were in here, Seth, we were around the corner interviewing Stanley Clark, and it was a speakeasy. Now we have Vince Ehrman and Drew Emmett, and it's a, it's a tasting room. It is a tasting room. Life has changed. And uh, this time we also have microphones that don't... Right. You still don't find speaking easy. Yeah. Speaking is not easy, even though it's not a speakeasy anymore. It's, it's easier for me than writing. You do speak pretty easily. I mean, wouldn't you say, Drew? Yeah, mostly. He's got the best words. <laughs> I got the best words. Trust me. I Educated. got the best words. Well, there's an elephant in the room right away. <laughs> 30 years. I went to Wharton. 30 years of leftover salmon, and we have a book coming. Tim Newby. <laughs> Tim Newby wrote Bluegrass in Baltimore, The Hard Driving Sound and Its Legacy, which I have a hunch is why you chose him to write this book. And it's on Roman. The salmon book is on Roman and Littlefield. Littlefield? Um, leftover salmon, 30 years of festival. Festival. That's right. So he interviewed not just musicians, but also fans. Is this true? Family, fans, managers, you know, people on the street. Bar owners? You know, probably Seth, too. You know, I, I don't know. I was. I did, I did not make the cut. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Consider yourself lucky. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a historian by training, and, and he was really thorough. You know, like, one thing I, I like to say, like, we, we kind of all had this story of kind of starting the band at Telluride for the band contest. And we all had kind of different stories of like what, how, what, what time of day, what, what right, day right, that really right. happened. He went back to the old Telluride schedules and figured out what time the band contest was to figure out which story was the most likely the correct way. That is so, I mean, that, that's fantastic because there's so much, so often now, like we're talking to musicians, they'll, they'll recollect something like that. And, and the stories all kind of match, but they don't. Yeah. And he cleared that up. I really like that. That's. That's interesting. Well, it proves that time bends oh, yeah, as it goes into the past. 
and the future. I saw that on Star Trek once. I heard it from Colonel. Wait, wait, yeah. you, what was that? The Colonel said time bends. Yeah, right, true. right. It all either comes back to the Colonel or Star Trek. Oh, yeah. One yeah. Especially things. in this town. <laughs> you know it. <clears throat> Just and drove you, past the Fox today. Man. Yeah. Oh. Did you read it? What's, what's it like reading a book about you? Hold on. You, that, you first assume that he actually read it. I have not read it yet. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I read portions thereof. Uh, it's been a yeah, crazy couple weeks. He's and, waiting for the cliff I notes. Even had a, a, yeah. I'm thinking about doing an audio thing of, of, for it, man. You know, Would you do fun. that? Yeah. You yeah. do the voiceover? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But then we have to have the elephant sounds and you know all the all the animals and all that stuff and just thinking of the menagerie it would take. Sounds of the bus going down the road. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's pretty complicated. But we'll see what happens. Oh, well, we don't have much time, so we got to keep these things moving. Boogie at the Broadmoor, March twenty-two to twenty-four, a three-day yeah. festival. You're joined by Lucas Nelson, of Promise of the Real, who I love. Mm-hmm. Nitty gritty dirt band, yeah. and the, do you know about the High Country Horns? Uh, no, I don't. Jennifer Hartswick. Natalie Cressman, Skerrick. Oh, wow. This sounds like fun. Is this the one at the hotel? Yes, Forget about Sam Bush. Oh, yeah. Sam Bush, too? Yeah. I did not see nope, that. Nope, Sam Bush won. The, I don't think they made another one of him yet. The Bluegrass Generals <clears throat> with, <throat> with uh, Green Sky and Dusters and uh, Elements. and you know, I, I, There's a lot going on. Now. Well, oh, let, let's dive into this real quick. So, so you've done the Stanley in the past, and now this is a same concept, new venue, correct? How right. much involvement are you all in the curation of this event? I'm at the the the, uh, the Broadmoor Hotel right now, actually, while we're doing this interview. <laughs> Big part of my brain. See, uh, um, we've been working with cloning technology, and that's all. Well, people, you know, wonder why. Wow, how do you guys tour so much? How do you keep it out? We just send. It's not really us. Carbon copies of ourselves to different places. But uh, no, no, to, to answer the question, we're, you know, John Joy, our manager, just loves doing these kind of events. And he runs everything by us, but he, he's the fuel behind uh-huh. making this happen. We get there and, and make things happen, you know, real time, you know. But yeah, there, there's much planning and all that. And the Broadmoor is an amazing hotel. There's right. swimming pools, there's a zoo, there's like, you know. There's a zoo. Yeah, there's a lizard collection you could have brought up to your room to sleep with and stuff oh. like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that the land of weird. lizards. Yeah, it's way more than Vegas, you know. Huh? It, what would it actually sounds like a good trip for us, Rob? Yeah. Just yeah. saying. And even though probably obvious, guests cross pollinating will be going on. Is that part of the planning, or is that more of the in in the moment wing? Well, what what guests do in the privacy of their rooms, man, is is <laughs> is fine with us. You know, that's why you do it in a hotel. You know, it's it's not as obvious as what you're doing in a tent. But salmon with horns. Yes, salmon with horns. It's those new GMO salmons. They've, they've crossbred <laughs> with unicorns. Oh, and, really? Yeah. So they don't yeah. swim upstream. They swim straight up into the they sky. Straight up. Yeah. Talk about a fish jumping, man. Uh, when you, yeah. So now, yeah. is Frasco on this bill, too? Frasco is not on the bill. But he's gonna, you're going to obviously think, clone him and bring him there. Well, it's our first year at the Broadmoor, and I, I think, <laughs> you know, maybe we should, you know, have the second year, you know. You um, want to be welcome to, back. To expose yeah. people to, to that kind of chaos. He's also gotten popular, which makes him expensive. Uh, pop, yeah. Well, yeah, but you got Uncle Vince here, so I mean, so how, oh. how how's the uh, how's the mentoring going? Do you call? Do you have weekly calls with him? And uh, I do, man. Uh, he's talking about maybe moving to Denver. Oh boy, this is good. I've recently moved to Denver, and uh, um, yeah, I think we could probably get some things done out there in the Mile High City. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, out of obligation, since we're in Georgia, I'm going to bring up something that maybe none of us can comment on. Papa Joe's Banjo Barbecue. I've never heard of this. You're playing it in May. Do you know anything about it? We've done it before. It's, it's cool. They got barbecue. They got Papa Joe. It's they got Augusta. banjos. They got great Augusta, peacock. Georgia. In Augusta, yeah. Augusta has, golf there. It has great people, but they don't get enough music, so this is good to hear. Yeah, it's a great outdoor thing. And always a great lineup. Uh, yeah. Fun Really community kind of day, you know. Um, there's no shakedown street, you know. And Blues Travel has been doing Fourth of July at Red Rocks for like, I don't know, like 45 years or something like that. And really? now this year, you and Jackie Green, speaking of guests, I hope you'll get Jackie Green out on stage with you. Yeah. But that, that, that's pretty good. Are you headlining or is it still Blues Traveler's gig and you'll play right before him? Or? It's still Blues Traveler's yeah. gig. But yeah, we, we, we've done a couple we had done Red a couple. Rocks with Traveler. Uh, on the Fourth of July over the years, man, it's uh, we love Red Rocks, man. The uh, outdoor avenue, uh, outdoor venue of the year, every year, this year for like every year <laughs> yeah. for the last twenty five years or something yeah. like crazy like that, right? Yeah, I saw the dead yeah. there in eighty four, and somebody somebody died climbing on the rocks or something, oh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird yeah. vibe. And Mickey Hart got in a fight with a promoter over a double encore the third night or something like that. Wow, weirdness. But the shows are great. Dear Mr. Fantasy Breakout. Um, yeah. But what about playing with Phil at Red Rocks? Was that Catfish John he sat in on? Was that your guy's idea, and was he immediately receptive, or did he have to be talked into it? Yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd done uh, some playing with Phil at uh, Terrapin Crossroads out in California, and uh, we, a couple times we've played with him out there. And so um, when he came on to do the Red Rocks thing with us, uh, you know, we were definitely hoping we could collaborate on some stuff. And then we got to sit in with him, too, on uh, – um, Cumberland Blues, so that was that was really really cool, um, but uh, just a thrill, just always amazing experience to be on stage with Phil. I mean, just and while playing at Terrapin Crossroads is a big deal, playing there on New Year's Eve with the Legacy of the Dead of New Year's Eve, that had to be a little extra special. Did you dress up uh, Vince as uh, Father Time? No, no, I uh, I did. Uh send a joint across a wire across the room, but it was very small and nobody noticed. The joint was 83, 84, was it? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. 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 I saw a few of those. Yeah, man, some incredible, and I, I, I have so many great Grateful Dead memories, and some of them involve going to shows, you know? <laughs> you know? But amazing. when you're at Terrapin, is everybody talking about the old New Year's Day? I mean, is it a very Grateful Dead history, camaraderie, sharing stories kind of thing backstage as well as on stage? You know, uh, Phil wasn't there, you know, for that night. But, uh, um, yeah, there was, we were definitely talking about that stuff. And we love the dead, and, and that's certainly part of the legacy. And going down to, to Terrapin or, you know, uh, love to get up to Bobby's studio sometime, you know. Um, he keeps teasing characters. that he's going to start that We're Here again. Yeah. You guys would be perfect for that. Yeah. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Oh, all right. Um, well, while we're talking about the dead, you guys each saw a bunch of shows. What's the memory, the experience, whether at the show, on the way to the show, after the show, that sticks out in your mind most about seeing that iconic band? I only actually saw the dead three times, <clears throat> which is crazy, I know. But uh, two of those times were at Red Rocks uh, in 77. So. Did you see Warren Zevon open? No. No, I think it was just them. But it was amazing. Um, 
I've been listening to the dead, uh, but I'd never seen him. My friends were like, you got to go see him. You got to come to Red Rocks. And it turned out that was a really, really magical show to see. And uh, that's the first time I really felt a wave of energy go through the crowd and go right through my body. It was just, whoa. It was amazing. Like, oh, I get it. I see why everybody loves these guys so much. I mean, the songs were great. You know, every song was, you know, classic. But more than that, just the energy and the vibe was was unbelievable. I'd never felt anything like that before. And I'd seen a lot of great bands, but uh, that was epic for me at that time. And you, Vince? My first show was in 78 uh, at the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh. Uh, great little venue. Uh, probably my favorite time, though, was in Cornell in 82. Uh, Cornell 77, right, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, Cornell in 82, uh, hitchhiked up there with my college roommate, uh, and, uh, just had a, had a great adventure. Uh, after the show, somebody came up and handed me this piece of paper. It said, this is it. <laughs> and the other side, it just said left Enfield center. Hmm. What? It was the great mystery, man. So we walked around and found out, yeah, Enfield Center's this town just down there. And when you, when you go out the highway, you'll make a left to Enfield Center. And then there'll be a sign that says, this is it. And, you know, we 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 found our way out to this party about, you know, 15 miles out of town. <laughs> it was on this this farm. And it was just grooving. Everybody was was balls to the wall and and uh you know we stayed there till dawn and a you know, beautiful sunrise and everybody hanging around the fire and you know, like it was it was just beautiful hippie hippie scene you know probably my my first real in deep dead initiation mm-hmm. it was just beautiful nice yeah. a young huey lewis wasn't there was he by chance he might have been you know? maybe it spawned that song if this I is w- it actually I w- it, oh I went, look at you rob it might be, you know. I was at uh, I was at a New Haven show that was Trey's first show. In, uh, New Is that the Haven, one with the big spoonful? Eighty two or eighty three. Um, they ended with "Not Fade Away," and it, it you know oh, that show. It, it didn't fade away till like you know three hours after. <laughs> it was freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. All right, Rob. This is this is a big one for me because I'm under I'm of the feeling that bands, particularly bands that improvise have to perform somewhat regularly to really be on their game. Not that they're not good, but just to really be on your game. You guys have been doing limited dates until the last couple of years. Now you're back on the road doing a ton of dates. Do you find that th- it fuels the music even more? All, all other things being equal, do you find that you're more on point, the improvisation's livelier, that the energy's better, or do you see, do you see that there's not really that much of a difference? Well, we've actually been back at it since 08. Um, really took, full-time, though? Yeah, pretty much. Well, we started a little slow. Um, just doing festivals and one-offs and stuff, but um, it wasn't long after that uh, that we started touring again. I guess it was 2011 where we really started hitting it again. But um, which feels like yesterday, even yeah. though it's you know nine know. years ago, definitely. But uh, I can't believe it's 2009 already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought it was 1994. Personally, but huh. Which you just you just got your email address now. Maybe that's two years later. Yeah, exactly. The email? author of the book said, uh, you know, when doing these interviews, that every everything I answered was so sometime in '93. <laughs> yeah, that Cornell show is '81, I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think okay. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. I don't remember either, but oh yeah, 
<laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. The more you play, the the tighter you get, um, and it it definitely makes a difference. You know, touring and playing a ton of shows, and uh, you know, you you definitely you get a, a a cohesion going with with the group, and and uh, you know, I think that you really hone what you're doing the more the more you play. That's for sure. Now, Rob, it's not just up. this. It's not just this. Uh, it's not just this band. It's that same thing. That same idea carries carries through to when you start looking at uh, all the touring that they're doing at the festivals and whatnot. And it's all the same musicians. Not all, but it's it's what we were talking about before. You got leftover. You've got fruition. You've got green sky. You've you know just you know, the dusters, etc. So I imagine it's the same type of thing where this this energy is just and experience is just picking right back up. Absolutely. If it doesn't wear you out first. <laughs> And you guys are like a pres like Arlo Guthrie says, and not the one you're thinking of. But Arlo Guthrie says, "You do anything long enough, people start thinking you're an expert." And you guys are like the, the this acoustic scene is blowing up, and you are kind of like the kingpins of it at this point. Well, you know, now that they've written a book about us, we get to sit down and play a show. So yeah, let's so let's you talk know, about I mean, that real that's quick. That's how big. Of a <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about is. that real quick. I know you, we we are very limited on time, so you're on tour. Talk a little bit about what this tour is and how because we're at a sit down room. We're not at you know we're not at the variety playoffs where everyone's dancing and and there's no seats. I mean here there's clearly everyone has a seat and a table. So is this your tour? Is this, this is yeah. Yeah, a bunch of opera houses and performing arts centers and, and all this kind of thing. And the Classy idea is to places. bring people into the living room and start at a civilized time of day, maybe have some dinner with it, you know. And, uh, you know, man, you know, we're back on the bus by like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night figuring, what, have, we're really done playing already? You know, we're used to starting at 3 a.m. in New Orleans and stuff, you know. Yeah. So it's been great and civilized and... and uh Man, it's amazing the difference the release of the book has made. All of a sudden, everything's different. And the Wheeler Opera House, in particular, <laughs> is special, right? The Wheeler is great. Wheeler was great, yeah. The Vilar up in uh, Beaver Creek is a great, great venue. Uh, yeah, we played a great concert on Salina, Kansas. Man. Salina. Uh, yeah. yeah I, like, I don't think some, I've ever heard of that cool town. cool spots, man. Uh, it's actually Salina. That place in uh, St. Louis. That's man, why. the... Uh, um, that was way oh, cool. That was the hundred year old theater in St. Louis. Yeah. That was really amazing. You know, it's been cool because some of the venues actually people have been dancing too. Um like last night in Memphis at the Minglewood, there was a big dance crowd, um, as well as people sitting down. Um which is great. Whenever whenever you can get both, I think that's optimal. Yeah. But uh, but it's been great doing the sit down stuff. Um It'll also be great to get back to, to rocking it, too. So. Yeah, I imagine so. But, Fence, aren't you afraid? I mean, people having food in front of you, that they're going to throw that food on you if you play a bad note? That would be fun. <laughs> I, I could probably do I could probably work with that. Like, what's, that, what's the musician's name? Mom's he always brought the pickles. fried chicken, and they all threw fried chicken at him. I know, it's better oh, yeah. than what Gigi Allen threw. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, Rob, wrap that up. We got, we got um, uh, one do more you think question. In these days, where truth is becoming more elusive, that people are drawn more to the organic and real beauty of acoustic music. Is there any correlation there? I hope so. I mean, there's still a lot of mechanized sort of musical product out there that's just, uh, you know kind of following this formula of, you know, a certain drum beat and a certain uh, auto-tuned vocal kind of thing. But it seems like 
maybe more and more people are turning to acoustic music and music that's more real. I'm at least hoping. I, what's weird is that we have so many cultural cul-de-sacs that don't intersect at all. You know, what a, that's I a good mean, description. You know, there's a lot of music that kids come into the show. Now I just have no idea what they're listening to. You know, um, you know, it, when, I, when Drew and I were growing up, there were three different television networks, you know. You know, it was like you watched one of those three shows the night before school, and, you know, it was probably all the same one. So you were all on the same page. You know, now, man, it, you know, our our sources of, of, uh, of you know, televised entertainment are so varied. There's nothing that bonds us together uh, except a great song every once in a while. And, you know, so, yeah, sometimes songs, you know, just feel so good you want to live in them, you know. Hey, and yeah. Maybe some more of them will come about and. You know, people will turn off their phones and get rid of Facebook and and just start playing acoustic guitar and eating Pepperidge Farm. Pepperidge, Pepperidge Farm, Farm remembers. <laughs> Pepperidge Farm. All right, Rob. Got to get Farm. this in. Steve Berlin, not only we interview him, but we interviewed him here at City Winery where we are. He produced something higher. And I've seen you guys talk about how his input with arrangements and energies helped you. What song on something higher would be a, an example that was most improved by Steve Berlin's input? All of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean the horns on uh, something higher itself. Yeah. You know, he he put together the section and did after the fact. We just kind of left space for it. And, really? And, and yeah, was that uncomfortable? We, we trust for you? him. We trust him implicitly to do that sort of thing. You know, he's he's at every decision he makes is aesthetically aligned with you know how we look at the world. So that's why we've used him for the last three projects we've done. You know, he's great. You know. And finally. How many times have you played a venue that you remembered in some way from a past life, and could you give the best example of this? I was just in Bomberg, Germany, playing with Frasco, and we were up in this third floor of this this place, and, man, it just felt so old, and the town was ancient. It was like where the Dark Ages started melting away. You know, Some of the early philosophers came out of there, and I, I just really dug this town of Bomberg, Germany, and that... That 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 hall, man, it was a trip. And you, and if you're interested, listen to uh, Andy Frasco's uh, interview. Uh, I forget what number it is, but with Vince, and you talk about that, and you actually sing a little ditty from that as well. Excellent. You, yeah, you share a bunch on that. That was that was an interesting storyline. I haven't read the book. I haven't heard the podcast, man. You're on it though. Yeah. I've not met Andy. <laughs> I gotta meet Andy. I've still not met Andy. Well, did you have a past life or future life thing? No, Drew. I had a past life. Uh, experience playing a venue where I was floating above the earth and uh, the audience was spinning around me really fast yeah well if you end on you send it to your own song David Bromberg um, yeah throw it to yourself well before that I just want to sure. go ahead and thank you guys for your time thank you. And uh, and big thanks, you know, everyone on the all the listeners know I talk a lot about strings and soul, and I talk about jam crews, but it's the spirit that you all bring that I want to thank. Um, you know, it, it's it's great to work with the artists, but you all you all go all out. I mean, Vince, what was it? You <clears throat> jam crews this year? We did uh, Mr. Wizard with you and Skerrick, and and you didn't stop there. You took the slime you made, and you brought it onto stage that night. You know, and Drew, you, you know, you picked up with the um, with the Pink Night theme and just went all the way with it and. And it's things like that that just the fans really love. 
And and it's just great to work with you all. So thank you for that. And if any listeners want to hear where the Mr. Wizard idea came from, they could listen to, I don't remember the episode number, but Vince uh, with us at the Hunt House that oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, I am a wizard. <laughs> don't, don't, yeah. don't think that these glasses are going to, you know, no. <laughs> Let me tell you about that. Here's, here's, a, here's a Bromberg tune for you. Blow my cover. my size Don't let false estimations rule you Cause even you might come to realize that I'm a wizard yeah, since my childhood and I have earned some respect from my art I rule the spirits living a while Stars. Don't you know I stand tall with the, the unseen power? So why the hell should I be scared of you? I can fill up your house with flowers. musical mentor, our ascended master, a hero, probably just about everybody in this room. Let's all say it on three. One, two, three. Bruce! Yeah. Here's the Bruce Hampton. We are all his children. Yes, sir. I just got to say that uh, Vince and I were at Bruce's 70th birthday party at the Fox where he he lost his life on stage that night and uh, it was uh, quite the indescribable experience um, and on the way home to my home in uh, Crested Butte, Colorado going over Monarch Pass this song came to me and I had to pull off to the side of the road and write it down and uh, it's on our new record Something Higher and uh, this one's called The Astral Traveler
darkness, he knows just 